Welcome to Beyond Bite Wings, the business side of dentistry, brought to you by Edwards & Associates PC. Join us as we discuss how to build your dental practice, optimize your income, and plan for your future. This podcast is distributed with the understanding that Edwards & Associates PC is not rendering legal, accounting, or professional advice. Listeners should consult with their business advisors before acting on any of the information that is shared. At Edwards & Associates PC, our business is the business of dentistry. For help or more information, visit our website at enassociates.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Bite Wings. And we have a special episode for you guys today. Honestly, we don't have a specific topic. We just decided we're going to do a very, not a very, let's just say a catch-all type of an episode, you know, and we decided to call it FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions That We Get From Our Clients. So we'll basically be touching upon all sorts of topics, and hopefully you guys will listen and learn something. And hopefully they'll listen and hear their question. Hopefully. (laughs) Right? And be like, hey, that was me. All right. So how should we start this episode? Pick a question and we'll give our opinion. I think that's a great idea. (laughs) So let's see. What's the most popular question that I get? Well, well, no surprise here. It's regarding a car. (laughs) So the number one question that I get asked, especially from people that are just getting into the industry, whether it be starting a startup or becoming an associate right out, out of school, or buying a practice where they've saved up some money and now they're deciding, okay, I should probably buy something nicer that's going to take me from point A to B. And and it's this, should I buy or lease a vehicle as a business owner? Yeah, you know, I hear that a lot as well. And I think our standard answer is if you're going to use that vehicle more than 50% for business, then you should buy it. If it's less than that, then leasing it is probably going to give you the lower monthly payment. And that's the thing to focus on cash flow. And I know everybody thinks they're using their one vehicle for their one dental practice more than 50%. But but the IRS doesn't think so. The IRS doesn't think (laughs) so. I can guarantee you that because I've had that conversation more times than I choose to remember. And so we know, and, and the IRS does acknowledge that the doctors use their vehicle for business to some degree. And I know that they're willing to accept somewhere around 25%, but not 50% or more. So if you own one dental practice, we can justify a deduction of about 25% of the operating cost of the vehicle. And probably leasing it is going to provide you a lower monthly payment. So that's the route I would go if you only own one dental practice. If you have multiple practices, really starting at two or more, then you can probably justify greater than 50% business use and you would get a bigger deduction then by purchasing the vehicle. So how are you getting this additional deduction? Well, part of it plays into how far that second location is from the first location and from your house because those all play a role in whether or not you're actually driving further or not. True. And if you are using it more than 50% for business, if you can justify that you're really using it more than 50% for business, then you'll be able to depreciate the vehicle, which provides you a lot larger deduction than just the um, percentage of operating expenses. I see. So that's what you meant when you were saying that the vehicle must have more than 50% Mm -hmm. business use. So if, let's say, the dentist, I bought a car, 
I only have one practice. Well, my business use would be less than 50% right. at that point. So you're saying I would not be able to depreciate it. That's correct. Well, you can depreciate it, but that's not where you get your big write-off. Oh, you can't take your bonus depreciation, which is what, what you really meant, yeah. oh, I which see. is the big first-year write-off. Yeah. I see. I see. Okay. But I think the follow-up question that we get is, but I live 50 miles from the practice, so of course <laughs> I'm driving more than 50% business use. Mm, and no. why does that not work? <laughs> well, contrary to what some of the industry newsletters will tell mm-hmm. you, you're driving from your house to your primary uh, place of business is not considered business use. That's correct. That is commuting. Commuting. And that's not deductible. Now, some of the newsletters in the industry will tell you, hey, if you're using your cell phone to check in with patients during that drive, that makes that business use. The IRS would not agree with that. I agree. Yeah, I, I agree that the IRS would not agree. <laughs> <laughs> And then how nice of a car can we buy? The price of the vehicle, the niceness of the vehicle mm-hmm. is irrelevant. I mean, you buy whatever you want. I see. I think the IRS would maybe take exception, but I don't know that that I've really ever seen that. I mean, if right. you there buy, is a luxury rule, luxury car rule, and there's an ordinary and necessary rule. So, you know, is my $120,000 Tesla ordinary and necessary? They're going to say no. But it's not something they follow up on a lot. So I think it's, yes, it's a rule, but it's not one that they really enforce. It's sort of like the not carrying wire cutters in your back pocket in Texas. That's still a law. (laughs) And I think another question that's similar to that is the question about the heavy SUVs. Yes. You know, if you buy a vehicle that's got a a loaded curb weight of 6,000 pounds or more, then it qualifies as a heavy SUV and your deductions are going to be greater provided your business usage is over 50%. It really comes all back to that. Yes. 50%. And then they ask if they should put it in the business name or the personal name. Right. Uh, And there are considerations into that. And if you're under the 50%, there is really no value in putting it in your business name. Number one. And number two, your insurance is going to be much higher. You need to make sure you report it to the insurance company wherever it's titled. Because if you have it titled in the business and you don't tell the insurance company that's commercial, they are not going to pay any claims if you have a wreck or something like that. So that's a risk. Yeah, I agree. And I usually tell clients, don't put it in the business name because your insurance is going to be considered a commercial vehicle. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be probably three times what your normal rate would be. Now, if you're looking at a high business use percentage and it's worth the deduction, that, that changes. But sure. but if sure. you're not and most are not, then then don't. Especially for the dentists. Right. I've heard we're talking about a construction worker. Right. Salesman. Different. Yeah. Different <laughs> thing. Yeah. I see. All right. Yeah. So. so if you're an associate dentist and you're running around to three or four different practices to work, then, yeah, you can get a pretty... A significant deduction for the use of a vehicle. Depending on your situation. If you have a tax home that you're working at primarily and you're going to uh, an office occasionally, you know, two or three offices several times a month, but you have one primary location you're at, it's the exact same situation. So how would you determine a primary location if, for instance, uh, let's say it's an associate, they're going to three practices every week? You're going to have to look at facts and circumstances. Is the income similar? Are the hours similar? Is there really no tax home? If there's really no tax home, that that mileage is going to bump up considerably. But if there's a tax home, if you're heavy on one location and your primary income source is that one location, then the IRS is going to deem that your tax home. 
And on top of all that, they would have to be treated as an independent contractor and not an employee. For it to matter at all. That's right. 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 Yeah, for it to matter at all. So if you're a W-2 associate, this doesn't apply to you. Right. There's no possibility of deducting it if you're a W-2 employee. Okay. All right. Well, the other popular question that I get, and this is mostly from people that are current owners of practices, which is this. Can I put my kids on payroll? Provided that the children provide uh, a service to the practice, then yes. And it can be a janitorial, <clears throat> excuse me, a janitorial service. It can be uh, filing. It can be uh, peeling and sticking stamps on envelopes. That's old school. I haven't uh, heard that one in a while. Well, as opposed to licking stamps. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I did update that a little bit. <laughs> and they can be going to the mailbox, uh, sorting through the mail, uh, anything that they can, any service they can provide, you can compensate them for that. So, yes, we okay. do suggest that. Also, if they're, well, it doesn't depend on their age, but if they're very young children and they, they don't yet know their ABCs and can't help file or anything, <laughs> they they could sit for fo- photography for use in the marketing materials for the practice, oh, and you wow. can pay them a modeling fee for that as oh. long as it's reasonable. Now, since you did bring up, you know, employing kids that don't know their ABCs yet, where would they receive their compensation or how should that money be spent? Can I, as their guardian, can I put that back into the business? I don't believe that that would really hold up as a deduction. So what we tell our clients is take that money and as long as it's spent for the benefit of the child. Okay. So we suggest opening an account for the children or the child. Mm-hmm. If it's multiple children, one account is sufficient. Use that money for their allowance. Use that money for their clothing. Use that money for their school tuition if they're going to private school. As long as it's used for the benefit of the child, then it's okay. I see. Use it to fund a, an IRA for them. That's another, you know, as oh, long yeah, as it's for their benefit. Right, right, right. Of course. Okay. We good. used to recommend that to shelter that piece from tax. That's no longer really necessary. Right. But it's still a good tax saving. Sure. Or not tax saving, but savings. Wealth mechani- yeah, yeah, mechanism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Great. Thank you. What about people that are very ambitious, you know, and they are go-getters and they have this great plan of what to achieve in the next 10 years. And for whatever reason, they love this number 10. They want to own 10 practices in the next 10 years. What's what's a good roadmap for these people? Or is it even possible? It's possible. Okay. It's difficult. I think the stress of managing multiple practices is not worth it for a lot of people. It's something that's a fairly recent trend, and by fairly recent, probably in the last seven or eight years, people have gone this route. They want to own multiple practices. They want to be able to sell those to a a DSO someday. It's just not worth it sometimes, and I find that if a doctor buys and develops one practice and then goes on and starts a second practice, a lot of times the associate they replace themselves with can't hold up the practice. It's going to decline in production, and they're going to end up really just spreading themselves too thin. And if they get the third and fourth practice, it's a matter of trying to manage multiple practices, multiple staff. Sometimes it's just not, more often than not, it's not worth it. And I tell people, focus on one practice. You can be more profitable in one practice than you can over multiple practices. We've seen that quite a few times. Some people can be very profitable with multiple practices. They excel at it. It's like their thing. But it's a unique personality mm-hmm. that they can do that. It's not everybody. We, we see a lot of people that want to do it when they set out and two, three, 
three to four practices down the road, they're really burnt out. Uh, none of the practices are faring well. They are not very profitable. Sometimes the doctor's making less money than they were, and they end up selling off one by one and, and getting back down to that one practice. So yeah. you really need to kind of know know yourself and whether that's something you want to tackle because it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. And it's a quality of life issue. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time away from the family. You find yourself working, you know, six or more days a week and 10 or more hours a day. And a lot of people just don't invest that time, that much time away from their family. Mm -hmm. So it's a a lifestyle choice. Mm -hmm. But it can be done. It absolutely can be done. But it's few and far that can actually be successful at it. I see. What's one magic number that you would tell a startup client, let's say, you know, a startup client who has come to you saying, okay, I want at least two practices, right? And I just started mine last year, let's say mid-year. How long do I need to stay open till I decide upon opening up my second practice? I'm not sure there's a, just a, a standard answer for that. Now, if you, if I was a bank, if I was one of the main lenders for dentists and you asked me that question, I, I, I would tell you two years. Yes. And yes, I would plan to, let's say the client is planning on achieving the second practice with finance money. So I have seen startups that did a million dollars the first year. Okay. You do that. We can walk into a bank and get your loan for the second practice <laughs> right away. That's right. But that's pretty rare. The The majority of startups don't achieve a million dollars in year mm-hmm. one. If you got to half a million dollars in year one, uh, I'm not sure that a bank would would loan you the money for a second practice that quickly. So somewhere between half a million and a million, maybe around, I'm guessing, maybe around 700, 750,000 the first year, maybe even 600,000. That's going to be a great first year. Mm-hmm. And you could probably get a loan for a second practice if you had a game plan because the bank realizes you can't work both practices. Mm-hmm. I see. But when we're talking about, you know, being able to take on the debt, will the bank allow me to take on that much debt? They will. The first two years. They, okay. they, they will, provided your cash flow can support it. And when you buy the first practice, uh, of course, there's no cash flow. Mm-hmm. Or when you start the first practice, there's no cash flow. The thing they're going to look at most on buying the second practice is the cash flow of the first practice. Mm, I see. They don't treat the second practice as a startup, even if it is a startup. Mm -hmm. They treat it as an expansion. Now, in the bank's eyes, that's a different thing. It is. And so they're going to evaluate it differently. They're going to look at that uh, cash flow of practice number one. So if if you want to get to 10 practices, the most difficult one is number two. It's easy to get the first loan. It's more difficult to get number two. By the time you're on number three, you can use some of the cash flow from one and two to buy number three. Oh, wow. The second one's the most difficult one to, to get started up. Oh, I see. Now, if you want to finance all 10 of them, it does get more and more difficult the closer you get to 10. Absolutely. The more debt you get, mm-hmm. the more difficult it gets. Absolutely. And also, you know, I've seen a lot of people that finance practice number one with a, a particular lender and then practice number two, they go to some different lender. Yep. Well, any lender you go to for a subsequent practice is going to want to have the lien on all of your practices because those first ones are more successful. And so they're going to want, you know, because there's less risk there. You've already been in business for a year or so. They want the lien on that. So you're probably going to have one lender that you're going to work with. And that lender can change from time to time. But it's going to be one lender, not multiple lenders, different ones for each practice. Right, because every time you get a new loan, they're going to insist on financing all of the debt you have. So you're going to have to refinance all of your old debt 
sure. to the new lender yeah. can become a hassle. Yep. Yep. All right. That was some great info. Thank you so much, Robert. Now, it's a little difficult for me to actually segue into these questions because they're all over the map. But again, we are talking about an FAQ yes. episode. So another, <laughs> this is actually a funny one, uh, question that I get is, hey, the county just sent me a letter asking for taxes for my business. Is this legit? You know, a lot of people don't realize when they start up a business or when they buy an existing practice that they're going to owe property tax, even though they don't owe real estate. Everybody knows you owe property tax on real estate, but they're thinking, well, I don't own any real estate. You know, my landlord, this goes to him. No, every business in Texas has to pay property tax on the personal property you have in your business. That's your dental equipment, your waiting room, your reception area furniture, your computers, your software, even the leasehold improvements. So yes, it's legitimate and you're going to owe that. Now, the, the the tax is based on the valuation. And so the thing that can be disputed a lot of times is the valuation that the county places on that. And if you have someone file the reports correctly, you might pay less tax. Lynn, you had some input. Well, I, I, I don't. I, I was just going to say that the term business personal property is very confusing. Is it business? Yes. Is it Personal, which is it? Right. Is it sounds contradictory. Why is it called business personal property? Yeah. So personal property is an <laughs> IRS term that really means your tangible assets versus your real estate. Personal property is tangible assets that can be deducted and, and depreciated. So this is business personal property. So these are tangible assets in your business. And yes, unfortunately, is very legitimate, can be very expensive, especially when you're starting out. Because your practices are your assets are worth a lot more. What's it usually average for our clients for a startup? The assets? No, the business personal property tax. Oh, you're gonna make me do math. That's really difficult. <laughs> Two and a half percent, roughly, okay. of of the amount of their assets, of fixed assets, which is a couple hundred thousand dollars typically. Okay. So it's two and a half percent of two hundred thousand dollars. There you go. See, <laughs> that's where Robert comes in, and my brain doesn't do that. So yeah, and then it, it, the older the practice gets, so there's a there's a spot in between where it's a pretty expensive tax, and then it goes down as the assets get older and less valuable to the county, I guess. So after ten years, are my assets worth anything to the county? Yes. I mean, do they depreciate them to zero? They don't. I think they will go down to ten percent. So there, there's always going to be some value there. And, and I absolutely promise you that whatever you think they're worth, the county thinks they're worth a lot more. The yes. county thinks they're worth way more than the IRS does. Their depreciation tables are very long. And so you, you buy a dental chair and the IRS lets you take off minimum of 20% the first year. And that's not the case with the county. They're going to let you take off maybe 10, maybe five. So they end up charging a lot more putting a lot more value on those assets than any other organization, whatever you want to call it. So the fight can be painful. So the, the really, the key is to file it right the first year. And that helps a lot. After that, you really can't dispute it for quite a few years. And then maybe you can do some uh, protesting and get that value down. And how do they, how does the county know what my assets are worth? You have to file a rendition every April or May, if you're in Texas, they're due April 15th because they decided that was a lovely date. <laughs> Nothing else is due on April 15th, so let's put these on April 15th. And they extend to to May 15th if you ask for a 30-day extension. So I don't know, depending on when this airs, 
you should have filed your rendition or contacted your friendly accountant to do that for you. So. By the time this airs, they should. Is the county ever going to send anyone out to, to actually look at my equipment? They can, yeah. I have seen that happen, especially if you if you never submit any valuations. If you don't file your reports, they will assess the value themselves. Sometimes they just choose a number. Sometimes they come out and look. Honestly, choose a number. Oh, wow. So... So it is very real. Yeah. And you can get lucky and they can choose a really low number. I mean, we don't always advise that you file this return. Sometimes we let them choose that number. Depends county by county and how valuable your assets are. And there's a lot of things that play into that. But sometimes taking the penalty is a cheaper route than actually submitting the value of your assets. You're with the county. Quit listening now. <laughs> <laughs> and typically, when do people receive these valuations and how long of a time do they have to dispute? They're going to receive them in January or early February. I think they actually come out in October, October of the end of the year. Then they're due in January or February. Well, so that's, I misunderstood then because I was thinking of the rendition. Oh, the rendition. No, he's he's talking about the valuation. The rendition comes out in January or February and it's due April. And then once you file that mm-hmm. and the city county whoever sends you back the valuation Mm -hmm. that they've agreed to then you have how long to protest it 30 days generally 30 days it may vary i don't think so it will vary state to state i don't think it varies county to county but yeah you generally have about 30 days i see the protest date often being late july is typically and then once the protest date passes or once you've protested and everybody's agreed to the to the number, then you get your actual statement that shows their final valuation and the tax you owe right. in October. Correct. In Texas. In October. And, yeah, in Texas. But most of them are due, the payments in most of the states are due in January. Now, if you want that deduction for your federal income tax purposes, you need to get it paid before the end of the year. But it's not due typically till the end of January. And if you don't pay it by then, you start incurring some serious fees. So you don't want to pay your business personal property late. Yeah, I think it's something like maybe 18%, I, yeah. 1.5% a it month or something. It builds up pretty fast, yeah. 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 You actually brought up an interesting point. So it says business personal property. So should I pay it out of my personal account or my business account? Pay it out of your business account. Okay. Yes. All right. That was great. Thank you. And then I know we're almost running out of time, but I wanted to quickly touch upon one other topic. And I feel like this is quite relevant to a lot of our clients out there. It is this. I'm an existing business owner. When should I start thinking about implementing a 401k plan? As soon as you start your business. (laughs) As a financial planner, I'm always talking to our clients about saving for retirement, even when they first start their practice. And there are some advantages to funding a retirement plan in the early years of your practice because you don't have any other eligible employees. Retirement plans can't discriminate, so you have to fund for eligible employees. And and as your employees have been with you longer, then they become eligible to participate and it costs you more to fund. So we switch the types of plans. But to address your question, I think by the time a practice is two to three years old, it should have a retirement plan for the employees. Now, I encourage owners to fund a retirement plan from the first year they open their practice. I see. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a 401k plan. It could be a different form of retirement. It would be a different form of plan, yes. We wouldn't start the 401k plan until we had eligible employees. I see. But we do recommend... Year one, you start funding your retirement. It's it's a great tax deduction, if nothing else. But it's a good habit to get into if you 
If you don't put the money away, you will spend it. You've got to start putting it away and making that part of your standard habit year to year is I know that this, this money is set aside for retirement for me and then ultimately later for your employees as well. Percentage for the employees does not make it detrimental. It's still very beneficial for the owner from both a tax savings standpoint and, a, and an actual savings plan benefit as well. And if the retirement plan is structured correctly, then it, it should save you more than it costs yes. you to fund for your eligible employees. And, and we can show you how that works. So, Yeah, we wouldn't recommend one that, that doesn't cash flow that way, in fact. Yeah. We would choose a different route. Yeah, definitely. Oh, so you're saying that this is something that I sh- well, the client should be discussing with the financial professional. Yes. There's some analysis that needs to go into it? Yes, there is. Okay, good. Great. Well... If you guys need help with that, we're certainly here. Our contact information is info at enassociates.com. And again, I honestly thought this was a great episode. Maybe we'll do a couple more of these throughout the year. Yeah, thanks. I want to thank the clients that have sent in questions. And thank you, Ash, for moderating. Oh, of course. Anytime. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to Beyond Bite Wings on your favorite podcast platform. For more info, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or reach out to us on our website. You can also shoot us an email at info at eandassociates.com.